Well, good morning. Good morning. My name is Christian. I'm one of the, the shepherds, uh, elders here at Cornerstone. It's a pleasure to be with you this morning. If you're new, welcome. Glad to have you with us. If you've been here for 20 years, we're glad to have you with us too. It is grateful. I am grateful to be a part of this church. It's really been where I've spent the pretty much the totality of my adult life has been in this church family. I'm so grateful for that. Um, yeah. Praise God. This also is uh, kind of the Sunday that marks whether we want it to be or not, marks the end of summer. Uh, some of us, our kids started school this past week. Others, like my kids, are starting this coming week. This is Promotion Sunday over in our children's ministry where they're all moving up to their new kind of grade-based classes. So hopefully you're able to find your rooms over there uh, with uh, your, your kids when you drop them off. Um, I want to just give you guys a heads up. One of the things we're going to do at the end of the service, uh, we're going to, we have one of our missionary partners, Cynthia, who's going to be sharing with us some updates about her work. Um, but it's a sensitive uh, kind of area where she works. So for those of you guys watching on the live stream or maybe watching the live stream later, we won't be able to show that part to you guys. But just so you guys know, at the end, as we sing one more song, I'll come up and bless us and close our service. We'll end the live stream, but stick around because we really want you to be able to hear from Cynthia. You probably saw her table with a lot of cool stuff on it as you came in. Um, one thing I was reflecting on just as we were singing those last couple of songs, between one that talks about God being the same God of Moses who parted the seas, who, um, who, who, who empowered David to stand up against Goliath, and then singing that last song about a day that has not arrived yet where we will stand before Jesus face to face, face and praise him, reminds us, again, we are part of a long story. We're going to talk about that more this morning, but it's a story that is not yet finished. And life doesn't feel finished. If you were watching the news and saw the horrific fires tearing through Maui, a place that we often see as a paradise, one of those island paradises that seems to be less touched by the corruption we see in a lot of the world around us. We see even there, things are not made new yet. It's been a devastating fire, and I thought the most appropriate way to start a service was in prayer. As a matter of fact, John and Carrie Reed, one of our uh, elders and his wife, they were in Maui this past week for an anniversary trip, and you guys had quite the... Uh, adventure getting home, didn't you? We were so grateful we were praying for you guys. You guys are home safe and well-fed now. It was a little touch and go there for a little bit. But for many people, I think the death toll right now is over 90. Some deadliest fire in the last 100 years in the United States, even just so far as they're beginning to work through the rubble. So would you join me just in a word of prayer for the people, and especially for our brothers and sisters in Christ who are in Maui. Father, we lift up to you, the people of the island of Maui, Devastated by wildfires here in Southern California, we know that well. That is familiar to us, but not typically something we associate with what we often view as an island paradise. Many of us probably have memories of time we spent uh, on trips in Maui. We thank you for the beauty that's there, but we see the, the corruption of it as well. We see what Paul talked about in Romans 8, creation groaning and longing for redemption, the freedom from this bondage to decay. We don't know. We wrestle with why questions when disasters like this happen. And you don't always give us the answer to our why questions, but like you did with Job, you show us yourself. You show us how big and good and powerful you are to the point where we know we can trust your goodness even if we don't understand your ways. We ask you, Lord Jesus, would you be with those who are grieving and devastation in Maui? We ask that you would position people and dwelt by your Holy Spirit, followers of Jesus, to be your hands and feet, to give cups of cold water and clothes and whatever is needed to help people rebuild. We ask, Lord, there are many, there's many. We could spend the whole day just praying about different crises going on in our world, but we know that none of them escape your eye. And I guess just right now we lift up our brothers and sisters and the people of Maui and we ask that you would redeem and restore and rescue. We ask this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Awesome. Well, this morning, we are going to be continuing our series through the book of Matthew. We're, we're wrapping up the section of Matthew that we've been, over the course, been in over the course of this summer. We, we've been looking at chapters 11, 12, and 13, which is kind of a unit within this gospel. Next Sunday will be another one of our reading Sundays where we'll take the morning to read through the next section, chapters 14 through 17, which we'll be going through into the fall. Um, but if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 13. If you don't have a Bible, one of the ushers would love to put one in your hands. You can go ahead and open up there. But we're closing out our time in Matthew 13, which is a collection that Matthew gives us at this point in his narrative of these parables of Jesus, these, these illustrative stories, these, these uh, metaphor stories 
about the kingdom of heaven. Every one of them is about the kingdom of heaven and especially the way that people respond differently to this message of the kingdom that Jesus has been bringing. Over the last three weeks, John and myself and Mike Steinwender, we've gone through them. We've looked at the parable of the sower, the parable of the wheat and the weeds, the parable of the the mustard seed and the leaven, the treasure in the field, the pearl of, of great price, and even this net that gathers good fish and bad fish. And we've seen throughout our our, um, exploration of these parables that there's three main purposes that Jesus uses at this point in his ministry in shifting from more clear, open teaching to these kind of veiled parables. We talked about these three purposes. And on the one hand, he speaks in parables to obscure the truth from the crowds, those who've been hanging around and hearing his clear teaching but not responding in faith, not turning and trusting and following him. He actually says to his disciples, even what they have will be taken from them because they haven't responded appropriately to it. There is an obscuring of the truth to the crowds. While at the same time, these same parables Jesus gives to reveal, to illustrate the truth for his disciples. They don't often understand it at face value, but he explains it to them, explains what the the truth of these parables are about. And especially we talked about this last one, that in each of these parables, Jesus is helping to address for his disciples that gap between their expectations of the way that the kingdom of God would come, the good rule of God to, to... confront evil and defeat evil and make all things new and bring salvation to those who trust in him and judgment to those who oppose him, to bring all of that hope together in this concept of the kingdom. And he goes, I know it's not coming in the way that you expected, but this is really the kingdom of God. Don't miss it. Over these weeks, as we've been looking at these parables, again, we've seen the way that this message of the kingdom of God, it's what I was just praying about, that, that it is here already through the work of Jesus, but yet not, in its, not yet in its fullness. There's an already not yetness to this kingdom, right? It's like, it's like a mustard seed, starts small, it will grow bigger. It's like leaven that is working its way through the whole lump of dough. But we also see in these parables how it's not just the kingdom of God that's growing, There's weeds growing up among the wheat too, right? This fish is, this net is gathering both good fish and bad fish together until the time of the harvest when Jesus says he'll send out his angels who will separate, who will sort out and distinguish those who he calls the children of the kingdom of God and those who by the rejection of Jesus are children of the evil one. But in the very first parable, again, he made it clear, not everyone accepts this message of the kingdom in the way that Jesus was bringing it. He said some people, this message makes no impact on their lives. It's like seed that falls on the path, the birds that eat up, and it makes no difference. There's no response at all. For other people, they respond quickly. They receive the word with joy, but they wither and fade like a plant growing up among thorns or amongst rocky soil. Sometimes what makes them wither and fade and not continue as followers of Jesus might be persecution, struggle, suffering. But sometimes, like he said with the the thorny soil, it's cares and concerns of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth that chokes out the word and makes it unfruitful. And yet throughout all of that, there is also good soil. There are those who hear this message and receive it and respond and turn and trust and follow Jesus and endure and they bear fruit. They're like those people that that, that Mike talked about last week. They stumble over the treasure in the field and they go, oh my gosh, this is precious. I'll give up everything that I have to be a part of this. They find that pearl of great price, maybe after a long lifetime of searching and they recognize its value and they will stop at nothing to have it. That's kind of the composite picture of the way this kingdom is at work that we see throughout all of these parables. And we see how in each of these parables, Jesus is giving this this explanation to his disciples because they both wanted to know what it was all about and they needed to know. They were those that Jesus had called to be fishers of men, to be disciples who were being trained in order to make more disciples. And so after the crowds just get the parables, back in private, Jesus explains the parables to the disciples. They weren't the sharpest tacks. They weren't the ones who just were smarter and figured it out on their own. They were those who came to Jesus, who said, Jesus, we need you to to help us understand this. And so here at the very end of chapter 13, Jesus comes and he checks in with them and he says, okay, how are you doing? How are you tracking with me? Is this making sense? Do you understand 
And then he gives them one final short parable that's really about them, about their task, about the reason why he was entrusting these truths to them. So again, if you have your Bibles open to Matthew chapter 13, we're going to start in verse 51 and read through verse 58. Again, if you are able to, would you stand with me as we read this together? Jesus says to his disciples, have you understood all of these things, all of these parables? They said to him, yes. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there and coming to his hometown, Nazareth, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished. And they said, where did this man get this wisdom in these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas, not Judas Iscariot, Judas was a really common name. One of Jesus's half brothers was named Judas. Are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God, amen. You can have a seat. As we dive into this last final parable, I actually want to start by looking again at this little episode of what happens when Jesus goes back to his hometown of Nazareth. Look again up here, what was put up on the screen in verse 57. See that phrase that they took offense at Jesus? This is actually a really important phrase within this section. You may remember back at the beginning of the summer when we were starting out in chapter 11, I pointed out that this idea to take offense, to stumble, to trip over what Jesus was doing is kind of one of the big ideas that holds this section together. Back at the beginning of chapter 11, if you flip over there, it begins with messengers coming from John the Baptist who's been in prison. He's hearing about the works that Jesus is doing and going, okay, this is cool, but it's not necessarily what I expected. Hey guys, can you go talk to Jesus and find out, are you the one who is to come or should we be looking for somebody else? You remember how Jesus responds to him? Here, look here in verse uh, four of chapter 11. He says, go tell John what you hear and see. Look at the mighty works I'm doing. The blind are receiving their sight. The lame are walking. Lepers are being cleansed. The deaf are here. The dead are raised. And the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended at me. At the beginning of this chapter, at uh, this section, and then at the end, we have this phrase, to be offended, to trip over, to stumble over what Jesus is doing. Do you see how this kind of bookends, it's like bookends that frame everything in between it? That there is blessing for those who don't trip up, who don't stumble over the, way, the unexpected way that Jesus is bringing the kingdom. But instead, even though it's different than what they expected, they turn and they trust and they follow him. But yet, as we've already seen and will continue to see, there are many people who do stumble over Jesus. Like the people there in Nazareth, who it seems could never get over the fact that Jesus was one of them. He can't be that special. He's from Nazareth. They never really gave a fair shake. They wrote him off because he was like a local boy. Again, we'll come back to this idea of to take offense at Jesus, to stumble over him toward the end. But I want you to see how it frames everything in between. Because remember, the whole reason why Jesus shifts at this point in the gospel from more open, clear teaching to these parables is because of the way that his clear, open teaching had been rejected by the crowds, how they'd failed to respond to it. Remember, that's what he says back in chapter, uh, verse 10 of chapter 13. When the disciples come and say, Jesus, this is different. Why are you doing this whole parable thing now? And he says, here's why. To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. I am entrusting something to you, these secrets of the kingdom of heaven, the real way that it's coming. But to them it's not been given. It hasn't been given to them to understand. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. I think the best way to understand this is to say this. They have so much of my teaching. They've been here. They've listened. They heard the Sermon on the Mount, all of it. And it's had no effect in their lives. So they don't get clear teaching anymore. 
There's just parables. Because seeing they don't see, hearing they don't hear, nor do they understand. Again, he, he now links this to a passage from the book of Isaiah. Again, this is what John walked us through a few weeks back, but I think it's important to review in light of this last parable. He says, indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, numb, calloused, unfeeling, unresponsive. And with their ears, they can barely hear and their eyes they've closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Remember what he said earlier in the gospel in chapter 9 where he said, I didn't come for those who are healthy. I came like a doctor for the sick. They need healing, but they don't recognize it, so they don't come to me for it. But, he says in verse 16, blessed are your eyes because they do see and your ears because they do hear. You see, you hear, you have responded to what I've said. And so in these parables, I am entrusting the secrets of the kingdom of heaven to you. Not just so that you can keep them to yourselves, but because I'm training you as my apprentices, my disciples, to share these secrets with others. He is not training them to be secret keepers. He is training them to be secret revealers. Make known, they don't have eyes to see it yet, but others will. So get it, understand it, take it, use it. Because you have a task to carry it on to others. Not secret keepers, secret revealers. So that's why it's so important here in verse 51 that he goes, are you getting this? Because if you don't get it, you can't pass it on. Have you understood these things? And they say, Yes, to whatever degree they did. At that point, they go, yeah, we think we're getting it. We're gonna see this stumbling understanding. We see it and then we don't see it as we continue through the book of Matthew. I don't know about you, that's really encouraging because I feel like that a lot too. Yeah, I got it. And then a little bit later, what, what do you understand? Oh, I can't explain it. Shoot, I used to understand it, right? Like it's slippery a bit. There's that sense of dependence. Lord, would you continue to give us eyes to see and ears to hear? Would you write your word deep within our hearts? Make it not just something we understand here, but that comes out in our lives so we can share it with others. But again, at least at this point, he goes, are you tracking with me? Do you get it? Yes, they say. And so he gives them this short parable that really describes their role, their calling. He said to them, therefore, Every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like this master of a house. Here's the parable. A master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. He says to them, okay, here's why you need to get this. I'm training you to be a new type of scribe. These scribes who are trained for the kingdom of heaven. Okay, what does it mean to be a scribe? That's probably a good thing for us to stop and unpack for a little bit. If Jesus says he's training these disciples to be these new types of scribes, well, what's the old type of scribe? As we've gone through the book of Matthew, do you recognize that at various points these, this group has come up, this group that's known as scribes? They're often mentioned in conjunction with another group, the Pharisees, neither of which are typically painted in a very positive light, right? Think about in Matthew 5, in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You need a righteousness that it exceeds as of a completely different quality than theirs. The role of a scribe, if I can boil it down, it's like this. In many ways, they were to be careful copiers of the Hebrew scriptures and, and other like rabbinic teaching. They, they would take oral tradition, things that were passed down verbally, and put them into writing, into a final form of writing that then could be copied and passed on. But the role of a scribe wasn't just a copyist. They weren't just to replicate things. But by their careful study and training as scribes, they came to be regarded as experts in the rabbinic teaching. They became to be regarded as experts in the Hebrew scriptures. And as experts, typically experts are people who get questions. 
hey, what does that mean? What do we do with that? And then they explain it. They, they had a role of teachers. So they were copiers. They were distributors. They were careful students. And they were teachers, interpreters, explainers to others. One book that's actually been really helpful to me throughout our study in the book of Matthew is a book uh, actually by one of my old seminary professors called Matthew, Disciple and Scribe. Disciple and Scribe. And he says this, if you were to break down a scribe's task, it involved these four things. Learning, being students of their scribal skills and of the, the documents that they were copying. They would be writers. They would also be interpreting, shaping the final form of it to make it understandable to people. They would then distribute it. They would make sure that those copies that they made went out so that more people had access to it. And not only the copies themselves, but they were... At the end of chapter 7, the crowds respond with amazement. They're amazed that Jesus is teaching. Why? Because he's, he's, he, he taught them as one who had authority and not like their scribes. He taught in a different way, not just saying, well, so-and-so said, and so-and-so said, and here's the, the history of all this. No, this is what it means. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I am the Lord of the law, and here's what it means. They had never seen anything quite like that. But again, the role of these scribes, they, they played an important role within the people of Israel to make God's word accessible and understandable. That's a good thing, isn't it? The problem is for all of their learning and all of their knowledge, they failed to respond to the Messiah when he came. By and large, the scribes of Israel rejected Jesus. As a matter of fact, later on in Matthew chapter 20, Jesus will tell his disciples the scribes will play a central role in his arrest and crucifixion. Look what he says. We're going up to Jerusalem and the son of man, me, Jesus, will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and they'll mock him and give him to the Gentiles to be crucified and to be killed. These scribes, the experts, the teachers of God's law, by and large, rejected Jesus but don't worry, Jesus says, because along the way, I've been developing a new school of scribes, a new kind of scribes, his disciples. Have you understood this? Yes, okay, because here's what I'm doing with you. I am training you. I don't know if you can see that blue. It shows up better there than on the one in the back. Every scribe who has been trained, the word is literally discipled. It's the same word we've seen throughout that. A discipled scribe in the kingdom of heaven. This is what I'm doing with you. Unlike those scribes who've rejected me, you are the ones I am discipling and training for the kingdom. And here's what I want you to do with it. I want you to be, in verse 52 there, like this master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. That's the parable. Let's talk about that for a second. This title, Master of a House, maybe if you're like familiar with Les Miserables, there's a song that, that pops in your head as soon as you hear that, right? Silly song. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. But um, the phrase master of a house, it is a, it is a title that conveys a sense of authority. But sometimes in our mind, we think title of authority, that must mean power, that must mean control. That's not the way that Jesus uses that idea here. There is authority that the master of this house has, but that authority shows itself in generosity, in hospitality, in welcoming in and sharing. Do you see that? A master of a house who brings out of his treasure what's new and old. Picture it like this. A wealthy person who invites people, honored guests into his home and then out of the riches that he has, he provides a lavish banquet for them. Now we know people can do that for multiple reasons. You can do that to kind of flaunt your wealth in like an ostentatious way, like look how great I am, to impress people. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. This isn't ostentatiousness or however you might say that. This is generosity. This is hospitality. This is, I am not just trying to wow you with what I have. I'm seeking to honor you by sharing with you the riches that have been given to me. Jesus says, this is what I'm doing with you. This is what I'm training you for. The treasure that this parable talks about, it's not literal silver and gold and things like that. It's those very secrets of the kingdom of heaven that Jesus has been entrusting to them through these parables. Remember, you're not secret keepers, you're secret sharers. You are to be those who now, the way he'd said it back in chapter 10, was what I say to you in secret, 
proclaim from the housetops. I might whisper it now, but your role is to be like those scribes who distribute it out so that more people can share in it. Be generous, be hospitable with the treasure that has been given to you because it's not just for you and it's not just for you to look good. It's for you to share and welcome others into. And he says in particular there that they are to share treasures that are new and old. I think the word order there is actually really significant and actually gets to the heart of what this whole parable is about. Share treasures new and old, but bring out the new first. Here's why I think that's significant. I think what Jesus is saying, okay, remember, this kingdom is coming in a way that you didn't expect, but it really is the kingdom of God. So share with people the newness of what I'm doing. Share with people my teaching, my life, my actions, my character, because that's what shines light on what the Old Testament was always pointing to. Bring out the new first so that you can see the old treasure in a new light. Remember again what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. Do not think that I came to abolish the law and the prophets, speaking of the Hebrew scriptures of the Old Testament. I did not come to abolish them, but to do what? To fulfill them, to fulfill the promises and patterns, to, to fill them up with new meaning. Sometimes there are those little details that you read through in the Old Testament. And you go, I don't even know what that has to do. And then Jesus comes on the scene and you go, Oh my gosh, that was so big. Like that crazy thing in Genesis 22 when, when God tells Abraham to go sacrifice his son Isaac on this mountain, which later is where the city of Jerusalem was built and where the temple was and where the sacrificial lambs were and then is where Jesus was crucified. And God says to Abraham, I want you to give up your son, your only son whom you love. <gasps> Oh my gosh, what an amazing foreshadow of what would later come with Jesus. But it's only in light of what Jesus does that you see the beauty of that story, right? Bring out the new that helps you see the treasure of the old. One commentator, a guy named Leon Morris, uh, he said it this way. He says, Jesus is saying in this whole new old treasure thing that the new teachings his followers are embracing do not do away with the old teachings, those in the Old Testament, but are the key to understanding them. The new age has dawned, and it is only in recognition of that fact that the old, the Old Testament treasure can be understood in its essential function of preparing the way for the new, preparing the way for what would come through Jesus. So Jesus says, guys, this is what I'm training you to do. Bring out the new treasure of my life and my teaching and my conduct because it helps you see the old treasure in its fullest light. Do you see that? But I would say it also works the other way. And if, if you have spent much time studying scripture broadly, you see that, that it works both ways. It's not only that through Jesus, we see the, under, the Old Testament more clearly, but it's also that through careful study and reading of the Old Testament, we see Jesus more clearly. We see the fullness of who he is and what he came to fulfill. So I would say this, in this parable of being these masters of a house who share these treasures new and old, Jesus is calling us to be students of all of scripture. The whole biblical story, the Old Testament and the gospel accounts of the life of Jesus. And even though it wouldn't be written for another generation or so, the New Testament letters that explain what Jesus has done and show us what it means to live in light of it and also to live in anticipation of what is yet to come. Be students of the whole story. That's what I'm training you to do. Here's the, a little uh, detail that I find really intriguing. Maybe you will, maybe you won't, but here, go with me for a second. Many commentators think that right here in Matthew 13, verse 52, in what is basically like the midpoint of, of Matthew's gospel, this is where Matthew gives us his purpose statement. That this little parable about a master of a house bringing out treasures new and old is basically Matthew saying, this is what I've been doing throughout this whole gospel. This is what I'm gonna do through the rest of it. Like this is what Jesus taught me to do. I am one of these discipled scribes for the kingdom of God. Jesus showed me how to bring out the new treasure that shines light on the old, showed me how to see the old treasure that shines light on who Jesus is and what he came to do. And here it is. 
I'm giving it to you in this account. It's not just an account of Jesus' life. It's an account of the way that Jesus discipled guys like Matthew so that we might know how to follow in those same footsteps. This is why throughout Matthew's gospel, he keeps on pulling us back into the Old Testament. Have you noticed that? He quotes from the Old Testament. There are over 60 explicit quotations from the Old Testament in the book of Matthew. 11 times, Matthew specifically says, this happened to fulfill what was written in the Old Testament. If you count allusions, not illusions like a magician or something like that, but allusions, times where Jesus doesn't fully quote from Scripture but seems to tie back to it, using key words like when he calls himself the Son of Man, we looked at that a couple weeks ago, linking himself to that passage in Daniel chapter 7. If you count all the times that there are allusions, these like almost like hyperlinks, where if you click on the word, it takes you to an Old Testament story. When you take quotations and allusions together, there are over 300 references to the Old Testament in Matthew's gospel. Why does he do it? Because every scribe who is discipled for the kingdom of heaven will be like the master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. He's modeling for us the very thing that Jesus taught him to do so that we might be apprenticed in the same way of thinking. But the point is, again, Matthew just didn't know how to do this. It didn't come naturally to him. It won't come naturally for us. It was something that he learned by walking with Jesus. It was something he learned by paying attention to the words and the methods of Jesus and putting those into practice himself so that he could pass them on to others. And it will be the same for us. Again, I want to go to that book, that, Martin, uh, that Patrick Schreiner book. Again, this is one that I think has been so helpful to me as well. Listen to what he says here, uh, commenting on this passage. He says, Matthew is the scribe who remembers Jesus speaking about the law and the prophets, about the new and the old. He demonstrates his expertise in the Hebrew scriptures, showing interpreters like us how to put their scriptures together as a unified whole, one whole story. And he also presents and interprets uh, an interpreted view of Jesus' life that relies on Israel's past to explicate or explain Jesus' significance. Here's how Jesus fulfills what came before. Therefore, he comes to modern readers as a specialist both in the life of Jesus and the Jewish scriptures. To understand one, you must understand the other. To understand the life of Jesus, you must know the Jewish scriptures. To understand the Jewish scriptures, you must know the life of Jesus. Do you see that? If you've been around Cornerstone for a while, or even if you're brand new, let me, let me, let me just tell you. This whole idea of understanding the Bible as one unified story that is fulfilled in Jesus, this is so important to us here at Cornerstone. We are passionate about understanding God's story as one unified story. We are passionate about teaching the Bible as one unified story. We are passionate about teaching you how to understand this as one unified story so that you can share it with others. That's what it is to be a disciple who makes a disciple. We've made this whole idea of one unified story the, the centerpiece of the way that we seek to equip disciples here at Cornerstone through something that we call core four, like a foundational level of biblical equipping that we do within discipleship communities. Maybe you're familiar with that, but we often illustrate it with this idea of a solar system, that there's these four things of the, of the, the biblical story, gospel transformation, basic doctrine, and mission and evangelism that together are like the, 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 the four key things that we want to instill in everyone who's a disciple at Cornerstone, but the sun at the center of the solar system, we call that biblical story that unified story with Jesus at the center because we think it's foundational to everything else. Understanding and sharing this story is the key to how we pursue change, transformation through the gospel. It's the key to under, we, how we understand what doctrine is, what truth is, not just by citing certain verses that we like and ignoring ones that we don't like, but watching the way that Jesus reveals, God reveals the truth about who he is across the story. And mission and evangelism, because we recognize that to, be, to know this story is to be called to participate in it, to be one who shares it with others. 
We've started several, uh, a few different discipleship communities over this past year. There's a few more that will be starting up over this next month. Our hope is to continue to create more discipleship communities of, you know, 10 to 12 people that spend about two years together working through this in the context of shared life. Um, that's where we're headed. We, we don't have room for everybody right now, but we're really seeking to develop in that area. But I would say this, in the meantime, if this is something you're hearing for the first time now, or you're going, wow, Christian, you keep talking about this biblical story idea, and you're intrigued about it. A couple years ago, I did a series of like intro classes. We took a couple hours to walk through each one of these, and those are available on the website. If you go to cornerstonecenia.com, go to the resource tab. One of the drop downs is core four. You'll find the videos for those intro classes. The second one we did really just dives into this idea of the biblical story. But this is essential. This is essential. If you want to know what we're about here at Cornerstone, this is, this is at the center of it to be those who are lifelong learners and sharers of the whole story of what God has done, is doing, and will do. That's what we want to be about. Amen? Amen. But in our last couple of minutes, maybe I want to address what perhaps is a question on some of your minds. It was, it was on my mind as well. Again, look back here at verse 52. Jesus says that every scribe who's discipled for the kingdom of heaven will know how to bring this whole story together, the new and the old. So every scribe is to be a disciple, but does that mean that every disciple is called to be a scribe? I mean, perhaps by now, after we spent about a year going through the book of Matthew, maybe if you're a follower of Jesus, you've gotten comfortable with this idea of seeing yourself as a disciple, a follower, a learner of Jesus. But a scribe? Like, is that what we're all called to be as well? And I would say, in the, you can think about it from two perspectives. In some ways, yes, and in some ways, no. If by scribe, what you think of is a very highly technical, highly educated person who knows how to dive into ancient manuscripts and original languages and get to like a granular level of expertise on each part of scripture, well then, clearly no. <laughs> Not everyone can or will be able to get to that level of study. I would count myself in that. I can't get, I can't get there. But some can. Like truly, some, God has gifted some people with such intellectual capacity that this is exactly what they should devote their life to do. To dive into and study at a deep level God's word because we all benefit from it. We all benefit from rigorous, good scholarship on the biblical text. We all do. Every time I prep for a message like this, I have a handful of study resources that I, I go to, commentaries, lexicons, th different things like that. And, and you know what I always feel like when I crack them open? I am way out of my league. <laughs> like, wow, there are people who are just well, way more well-read and well-researched than I am. And then there's a second thought that usually comes up. After feeling out of my league, I go, thank you, Lord, that there are a lot of people who are in this league. <laughs> Oh my gosh, thank you, Lord, that there are people who you have given minds to do this work because we benefit from it. Our confidence in the text of Scripture, our confidence in the meaning of Scripture is strengthened because God has given us a big family and there are some brainiacs in this family who use those brains really well. Sometimes it's not just a matter of mental capacity, but just like space and time in your life. That's one thing I recognize as, as a great blessing in my life as one of your elders, especially in like a full-time staff role, I recognize that more of my time is freed up than most of us to give time to study and research God's word. In large part because of the generosity of you who regularly give to this church. And so the first thing I want to say is thank you from the bottom of my heart for providing for me and my family so that I can give my time to care for and shepherd you and study God's word, hopefully to be a benefit to you. Not just so that I can grow in my understanding, but I want to be that generous, hospitable sharer who says, look at what I see. Come share in this. Come know it so that we can, you can pass it on to others as well. And in that way, I would say, whether that sharing, that communicating, that passing on of what you learn looks like conversations around the water cooler with your coworkers, Conversations over the back wall with neighbors. Conversations with your kids at bedtime. Conversations with our kids over in children's ministry like right now. All disciples are called to be hospitable and generous in sharing the treasure that's been entrusted to us. And so I would say in that way, 
if we go back to those main tasks of a scribe, is every disciple called to be a learner? Absolutely. Is every disciple called to, at least in some ways, be able to distribute, to learn how to interpret, understand God's word in order to explain it to others? Is every disciple called to be a teacher? Yes, in some capacity, yes. The way that Paul puts it in Colossians 3.16, he says to the church in Colossae, he says, let the word of Christ dwell in y'all richly, teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom. That there is a certain way in which teaching is a y'all thing. Again, there are certain people based upon calling or gifting or space in their life who will devote more of their time to do it. But every disciple is called to be a teacher to others in some capacity. Do you see that? Does that motivate you to be a serious student of God's word so that you know what it is you ought to pass on? Remember the way that Matthew concludes his gospel with the Great Commission. And what is the Great Commission? It is the call out of the authority of Jesus over all heaven and earth to those 12 to do with others. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. Do you remember actually last summer, we spent the whole summer going through the Great Commission in preparation for diving into the book of Matthew with this goal in mind. Matthew wrote his gospel not just to be an account of Jesus' life, but a manual for discipleship, a manual to teach us how to walk with Jesus and walk with others like Jesus walked with his disciples. And it comes to a climax here in the Great Commission. Teach them to observe. Last summer, I, I taught, we did one whole message just on that word observe, because it's rich. When you look at the word observe just on face value, you can think it means just passive watching, right? Like when you observe a football game, you may have spent way too much money to sit at the 50-yard line at said football game, and you may lose your voice and cheer, but your cheering, I'm sorry, had no impact on the outcome of the game. You just passively observed, right? Is that what Jesus is saying? Just watch, just watch. I'll do the main thing, you guys sit in the stands and watch. No, it doesn't mean that. When, when I did my message on this, this, just this word observe, I gave us three Ps. I don't expect you to remember them a year later, so that's why I'm going to bring them up again. Three Ps to understand what this word observe means. It means to pay attention. You got to pay attention, right? Pay attention to all that Jesus has commanded. Practice all that Jesus has commanded. And pass on what Jesus has commanded to others. Pay attention, practice, and pass on. To observe it like you would observe a family tradition or like a national holiday. You observe it, not by just going, oh yeah, look at that over there, but by doing something with it, right? If you wanna keep a family tradition alive, maybe your grandma had these famous cookies she made at Christmas time or something like that. You don't keep that tradition alive just by remembering the way grandma did it or keeping the recipe card in a box somewhere in your kitchen. You observe the tradition by practicing it. By cooking the recipe, by sharing it with your family. And then at a certain point, if you really want to pass it on, you got to bring Johnny and Susie into the kitchen with you. You got to bring your nieces and nephews in with you and teach them how to do it too so you can pass it on. Pay attention, practice, and pass on. All disciples are called to be engaged in that task, to share what has been entrusted with us with others. Amen? Lifelong learners of all of Scripture so that we can be generous and hospitable to share the treasure that's been given to us. That's what we are all called to do. Is that a reality in your life? Is that what you're straining toward? Or do you expect that half attention for 45 minutes a week will get it done? Think again of the way that most of the people who simply heard Jesus's messages but didn't respond. How did it turn out for them? Think about the people again in Nazareth. I said we'd come back to this now. Let's look at that last little bit there of the way that Jesus was received in Nazareth. The people in Nazareth in the synagogue, they paid attention to what Jesus said. Yeah, they paid attention enough to be astonished by it. Whoa, where did this guy get this wisdom? I mean, we know his whole family, his mother, his brothers, his sisters. They don't mention Joseph, which is why most people think Joseph probably had died at some point before that. He's the carpenter's son, but we know about Mary and his brothers and sisters. 
It seems that their familiarity, again, with Jesus' humble beginnings dulled them from feeling any need to respond to his message. We know this guy. He used to run around here. He can't be that special. It seems to me, again, the way that Jesus responds to this says, look, a prophet's not without honor except in his own hometown. It's an instance of that well-known adage that we use, which is familiarity breeds contempt. You heard that before? Familiarity breeds contempt. The idea that to be familiar with something, the more familiar you get or think that you are with someone, the more commonplace and normal they might seem to you. Oh, yeah, I know that guy. But typically, you don't just stop at going, okay, I'm familiar. Familiarity turns to criticism. You start to see their weaknesses that are flaws or the things that you don't like about them, and you get really critical. And over time, that criticism gets to the point where it clouds out everything else, and now you lose all perspective and respect for them. Contempt. A familiarity that breeds contempt. I don't know if that's the point that the people of Nazareth got to, but it seems like it. Again, even from the way that Jesus responds. He goes, you have no honor for me. You show me no honor. He does no mighty works there because of their unbelief, literally their faithlessness. Stop and think about that for a second. That is a scary place to be, to be very familiar with Jesus, his ways, his teachings, but yet faithless. Familiar with Jesus, but having no faith in Jesus. To be familiar with him, his life and teachings, but to fail to respond appropriately instead of turning and trusting and obeying and following him, you just kind of fold your arms. Oh, I've heard that. Oh, yeah, 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 I get that. You should read this. You should listen to this podcast. This other guy just totally destroys it. Yeah, you should listen to that instead. How familiar are you with the teachings of Jesus? Like you can't make much progress as a disciple who makes disciples if you're not familiar with what Jesus has said and done, right? How familiar are you with the biblical story as a whole? And what result has that familiarity had in your life? Has your familiarity with God's word led to greater faith and faithfulness and trust and obedience and even transformation in your life? Or has it led to you being dull, to contempt, to be more like that foolish man that Jesus talked about at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, on the, on the Mount who built his house on sand. Why? Because he heard what Jesus said but didn't do anything with it. The easiest way to build a sense of familiarity that leads to contempt is to make a regular pattern of hearing, listening, reading from God's word, but not responding in obedience. To not turn and trust and follow. All that that does, if all you do is hear and not respond, you are inoculating yourself to the gospel. You are building up a tolerance. Remember the movie Princess Bride? The classic inconceivable scene where they take the, 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 the Iocane poison powder, they put it in the two glasses of wine, and it turns out there's poison in both, both cups. But what did Wesley do? Slowly but surely, he took a little bit of that poison over time and time and time until he built up such a tolerance that it had no effect. Whereas the other guy just croaked over dead, right? <laughs> Is that what you do with God's word? A little bit of time, a verse of the day that keeps the devil away, but it also keeps any real lasting change away. That's the same thing the crowds did with Jesus. They would hear what he said and not respond or maybe respond with a good clap and maybe some money in the basket and then go their way. And Jesus said, they neither see nor hear. Their heart has become dull. They don't understand. They don't turn. They don't come to me for healing. To make a regular pattern of hearing God's word and not respond is to set yourself up for dullness, numbness, to not even feel a sense of conviction anymore. Is that you? Psalm 95 says, today, if you hear God's voice through his word, through maybe my words as I'm speaking, do not harden your hearts. 
Turn, respond. The Lord is a great God. He's the great king above all gods. We are his people. We're the sheep of his pasture. The way that Jesus talked about sheep in John 10, he said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. You know why? Because they follow me. Do you follow Jesus? You may be familiar with Jesus, but is he familiar with you because you're with him? Otherwise, the way Jesus says it here is, even what someone has will be taken from them. We are called to be lifelong learners of all of God's story so that we might be lifelong sharers of all of God's story. But remember, if all you do is hear and don't respond, you are inoculating yourself to the power of the story and you have nothing to share with others. Man, if, if you recognize that's a place you've gotten to, a place of hardness and dullness and unresponsiveness, and the point is to come to Jesus and go, soften my heart, Lord. I've grown dull and callous. You're, the glorious truth of the gospel seems common to me. That's wrong. Shake the dust off my soul. Help me to feel the wonder of the gospel again. Then I might have something that I want to share with others. The way we're going to finish this morning, I'm going to ask the band if they would come back up. We're going to sing a song together that's actually one we in introduced this spring. It's called Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery. Do you remember that one? We sang it more uh, leading up to Easter time. I love just the title. Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery of what God has done in Jesus. As we sing this song, recognize it is an invitation both to us and an invitation that we extend to others. If you recognize that the gospel has become commonplace and boring to you, come behold the wonder of it again. Shake the dust off of it. See the treasure that it is again so that you might recognize it is worth sharing with others. And at the same time as we sing this song, if there are any here who have not yet turned and trusted in Jesus, this song is an invitation to you to come see the wonderful mystery, the new, the old treasure that's in Jesus. Come, behold it. We want to be generous and share it with you. We are not here to beat you over the head with truth or feel superior, God forbid, with the truth that's been given to us, but to welcome you into a treasure that we found. If you would like to pray with someone, there'll be some of us up over here at the prayer room as we sing the song you come up afterward for prayer as well and again don't forget after we sing the song stick around so we can do a, an update on one of our missionary partners but god bless you and let's stand and sing this together